Lord, we thank you for the promise that you still speak to us through your word, that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, we pray that we would hear from you today by your spirit. Give us ears to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, my family went to Arkansas to visit some of our friends who live in Siloam Springs. Our friends Chad and Ansley live in northwest Arkansas, and we went to go visit them there. And uh, Chad is a professor of theology at John Brown University there. And uh, so we went to visit them, and our friends Jess and Jessica, uh, sorry, Jeff and Jessica uh, came down from Kansas. They're about four hours away, so they came down uh, to visit as well. And so there were uh, nine children and six adults in a three-bedroom house for a week. Um, It was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Uh, But Chad and Jeff are two of my closest friends. And throughout our relationship together, our conversations have always turned toward matters of faith and matters of theology and biblical interpretation. And and, in all of these matters, uh, Chad and Jeff and I all come with very different perspectives Um, But those times together are a real um, as iron sharpens iron kind of time. Uh, Through that time of of thinking deeply, and uh, Chad and Jeff are are deep people, uh, sharp people. And so I leave my conversations with Chad and Jeff, um, always with this deeper knowledge of God and with a deeper sense of love for God. Well, early on in the week, while we were there, Chad posed a question to Jeff and I that we discuss kind of off and on throughout the week, and uh, it's a question that has stuck with me over the last few weeks since we've been back. And the question was this, uh, who was the first sinner in the Garden of Eden? Who was the first sinner in the Garden of Eden? And my first thought, and I suspect... Most of your first thoughts would be who? Eve. But in Genesis, there is one who has rebelled with God before Adam and Eve. That is the serpent. And the picture we get of Eden is that it is this perfect place. A place where human beings dwell in perfect unity with God. And yet in Genesis there is this foreign and evil presence. This serpent that is there in this perfect garden. Who has already rebelled against God before Adam and Eve could have ever even thought of rebelling against God. Genesis does not explain the presence of this serpent. It does not tell us where the serpent comes from or what the serpent was doing in the garden or how the serpent got there. But the serpent is there and he tempts Eve and Eve and Adam fall. But as the story in Genesis 3 continues, God makes a promise. God makes a promise to humanity regarding that serpent. God curses the serpent and says that there will be a descendant of Eve who will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. In other words, God promises that one day there will be one that will come who will not only forgive sins, but who will destroy the power and the evil behind the sin. And throughout this sermon series on the Bible and God's mission, we've been saying that God's mission is to fill the whole earth with his glory. 
God's mission is that the whole earth will be the place of God's divine habitation, His divine presence. And Revelation 21 describes God's final plan, God's final plan for God's heaven and earth by saying that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, by saying that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God so that the dwelling place of God will be with people. Revelation 21 says that God will be so near to us that he will wipe every tear from our eye. Do you know the song, This Is My Father's World? One of my favorite lines in it. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. This is the image of God's final plan and purposes for his creation. That heaven and earth would be joined together as one. That earth, our place, would be united together with heaven, God's place, so that the earth would be filled with his glory. Because of the presence of evil, certainly because of the sin and rebellion of human beings, but also because of the source of evil, Satan, the whole earth is not yet fully ready to be the place of God's divine presence. But one day it will be. One day a son of Eve will come and crush the head of the serpent and make possible the destruction of all evil. And so who is it going to be? Which descendant of Eve is going to be the one who will crush the head of the serpent? As we move through the biblical story, we get closer and closer and closer and closer to the answer of who this one will be. In Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and says to him that through one of your descendants, Abraham, through one of your descendants, all of the world will be blessed. And so we find out in Genesis 12... That one of the descendants of Eve, a descendant of, a-, a descendant of Abraham, that one of his descendants will be the one who crushes the serpent's head. And then in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses all of his sons. And when Jacob blesses his sons, he comes to Judah. And we are told that out of Judah, there will be a ruler who will come from Judah's line, who will conquer all of his enemies, and who will be a king who will have an everlasting reign. And so we get a step closer, finding out that the descendant of Eve will be a descendant of Abraham, will be a descendant of Judah. And then we come to the story of David. He is the anointed king. And there are all sorts of reasons to believe that maybe David even is the one who will crush the serpent's head. He has victories over all of Israel's enemies. He establishes his throne in Jerusalem. But we quickly discover in David's story that he will not be the one who is able to overcome sin and evil. But God does promise that there will be one from David's line who will reign on a throne forever and ever. So we know that the one to crush the serpent's head is a descendant of Eve, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. 
And so we come to the story of Solomon. And the question is again, will he be the one? Will this descendant of Eve be the one who will crush the serpent's head? And I think early on in the story of Solomon, we begin to wonder if maybe, just maybe, he is the one. So this morning we're going to talk about two things. First, we're going to talk a bit about the character of Solomon, about his successes and failures as a leader. And secondly, and for the most part of our time today, we're going to be talking about the temple and about God's purposes for the temple. If you remember in our story last week, David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a temple, and God made it clear to David that he would not be the one to do this. But he did say, David, I want to build you a house. There will be one from your descendants who will, who will reign on the, your throne forever and ever. But now through Solomon, God does build a temple. In 1 Kings chapters 6-8, through 8, God does build a temple for himself. And we're going to talk today about God's purposes for this temple. How this temple is connected to Jesus. And finally, a bit about how this temple is connected to the church's mission today. So let's get started with Solomon. He was a man of great success as well as great failure. There's really no character in the Bible that has so much promise, so many skills and gifts and wisdom, who does so many amazing things, who does so many good things, but because of his own failure, because of his flesh, causes him to fall so hard, and he does so much damage because of his mistakes. Solomon has so much success in his life. At the very beginning of his reign, God comes to him and he says, Solomon, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon does not ask for power. He does not ask for wealth. What does he ask for? He asks for wisdom. And God gladly gives it to him. And Solomon becomes known at that time uh, and and throughout the world and throughout history as one of the wisest men who has ever lived. Solomon becomes the father of all the wisdom literature in the Bible. The books of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Song of Songs, all of these have their source, whether he was the direct author or those who learned from Solomon, they have their source in Solomon's wisdom. Uh, The wisdom in those books come out of Solomon and his teachings, and he becomes this key figure of the great wisdom literature in the Bible that we continue to read today, and we begin to understand better what this world is all about as we read them. During Solomon's reign, he brings peace to Israel. He establishes Israel's border, and he brings order and peace throughout the kingdom. Throughout his reign, people come from all over the world to come and just to see Solomon's kingdom and to learn from him and go back to their kingdoms and learn how they can put together, put into practice the principles that they learned from Solomon. And most importantly, Solomon begins and completes this task of building the temple. At the beginning of his reign, he builds this temple, he establishes worship to God, and he leads the people to rightly worship the God of Israel. And God uses Solomon. God uses Solomon to take the first step in filling the earth with his glory. Because he makes the temple the first place on earth that is filled with his glory. The first place on earth that is the place of his divine habitation is the holy of holies in the temple. But Solomon's life after that time, 
it's a disaster. Instead of continuing down this road of faithfulness, Solomon makes, Solomon makes all kinds of terrible decisions. He ends up destroying the kingdom of Israel. In order to keep peace with all of these surrounding nations, Solomon enters into marriages with foreign wives. These wives and uh, this influence of the nations lead Israel into idolatry, into worshiping all kinds of other gods. Uh, Solomon begins to lose power and influence, and when he dies, it's not clear who's in charge. And after his reign, the nation of Israel divides into two. And ten of the tribes from the north establish the kingdom of the north, which comes to be known as Israel. And they set up an alternative site of worship, and they set up a couple of golden calves and worship them. And you kind of read the story and you think, yeah, I've heard this before. Um, They set up these golden calves, and the northern kingdom is often running in the wrong direction. The southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem and the temple are located, they continue on on their own, uh, and they establish kings in Jerusalem. And the rest of uh, first and second kings... Um, After Solomon are stories of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we'll be talking more about those kings in the next week. But if you know this story, you know that it's a pretty bad story. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom. Not a single one in their entire history. The southern kingdom does have a few good kings, but many bad kings as well. And so uh, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel spiral and spiral and spiral and become worse and worse and worse and go further and further away from God. And that is Solomon's legacy. His compromise, his indulgence in the things of the flesh, this eventually puts Israel on a path towards destruction. But he also leaves this other legacy of the temple. This place of Israel's worship. This place that becomes the dwelling place of God. And I want to spend some time talking today about this temple and what it was all about. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings 6 through 8 is the story of Solomon's great temple building project. And it describes the temple in great detail, how it was built, uh, the different dimensions of the temple, the different decorations and symbols that were a part of the temple. And the temple then becomes the place of God's unique presence on the earth. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. And the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. And these poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple." The whole earth will one day be filled with his glory. But at this time, the glory of the Lord filled the Holy of Holies in the temple. The temple becomes the first place on earth of the divine habitation of God. Now there are two main purposes that God had for the temple and the worship in the temple. First, the temple would be the place where people would make... uh, 
the place where people were made right with God through animal sacrifices. Now this seems strange to us, but at the heart of the worship in the temple is that in the temple there were constantly animals being sacrificed in order to make atonement for the people of Israel. And the idea here about animal sacrifice is that, uh, that when a person sins, they become unholy. They become unclean. They become unable to enjoy the presence of a holy and perfect God. And so God provides a way through the sacrifices of animals for the punishment of that sin to be absorbed by the animal. And so there are these different sacrifices that would be made for individuals and for the whole nation that all became a part of this sacrificial system, these sacrifices that were made in order to make people clean so that they could enjoy the presence of God. And this whole sacrificial system took place in the temple. This is where people would bring their sacrifices and the priests there did their work of sacrificing them on behalf of the people. And so the temple, being the place of the presence of God, was where the people brought these animals and understood that God's presence is here. And I need to be made holy because of my sin, be made clean because of my sin. And so they would make these sacrifices and the animal would take upon their punishment and absorb uh, that punishment for them. So the first purpose of the temple was to be a place where people were made right with God through animal sacrifice. Secondly, the temple was the central place of worship and prayer. Because it was the place where people were made right with God, the temple also was the place where people enjoyed the presence of God through worship and prayer. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 38 through 40. This is Solomon praying and blessing the temple. He says, When a prayer or a plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart, and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, so that they will live so that they will fear you all the time that they live in the land you gave to our fathers. God's people experienced prayer in the presence of God in the temple. But as Solomon goes on in this prayer, we see that God also has a concern not only for the people of Israel, but also for the nations. Look at verse 41. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel... But it has come from a distant land because of your name. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes to pray towards the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, and do, as do your own people Israel. And may know that this house I have built bears your name. I think this is an echo of God's promises made to Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants that all the nations will be blessed. God makes space here in the worship of the temple, not only for Israel, but for the prayers of the people of the nations as well. So those are the two main purposes of the temple. And I want you to write that down in your notes. The two main purposes of the temple. First, that it would be a place where people were made right with God through the sacrifices made in the temple. And secondly, that it was a place where people experienced the presence of God through worship and prayer. 
And what we're going to see in a few weeks is that later in the Old Testament, because of Israel's disobedience, the presence of God actually leaves the temple. This is a tragic, tragic moment in the history of Israel. But the prophet Ezekiel tells us that God withdraws his presence from the temple, which for us reminds us that this is a new possibility for a different way that God is going to dwell on the earth. And that would be through and in Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus in the temple. In the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are lots of references to the temple and how Jesus relates to the temple. And we can't certainly talk about all of those, but I want to mention a few from the gospel of John. So turn with me to the first chapter of John. I'm going to look at John chapter 1 first. John is one of four men who wrote about the gospel and uh, and ministry of Jesus. And he begins his gospel by telling us about the Word of God and about how the Word of God became a human person in this man named Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This word dwelling, dwelling among us, is the same Greek word that is used for the tabernacle. John tells us here that in Jesus, God is doing a new thing with His presence on the earth. Jesus is said to come and tabernacle among us, Jesus becomes the new place of God's dwelling on the earth. The Word of God made flesh, Emmanuel, God's presence is with us in Jesus. And then John continues in these early chapters of his book to point to the fact that God is doing a new thing in Jesus that completely fulfills the role that the temple played for the people in Israel. Later in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we run into this character of John the Baptist, a prophet of Israel who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist is out preaching one day. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says that Jesus is walking towards John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This sacrificial system that I described earlier, this never-ending cycle of sacrifices that had to be made for the sake of the sins of the people of Israel, now in Jesus, John the Baptist tells us that something new is happening. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. In Jesus, the sacrificial system is no longer going to be necessary. The temple was the place where people brought their lambs to be sacrificed so that that lamb could make them clean. But now there is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not only of individual Israelites who come and make these continual sacrifices, but the one who takes away the sin of the world. But John isn't finished yet. In John chapter 2... John chapter 2, John makes another point about Jesus and the temple. In John 2, Jesus goes into the temple, 
and sees that the people there have made an absolute mockery of this whole sacrificial system. And he goes into the temple and he overthrows the tables of the money changers and those who were selling animals so that people could make sacrifices. There are people making a lot of money out of this sacrificial system and it makes Jesus angry. And he goes in and he cleanses the temple. Those who are making money on these sacrifices are pretty angry. They demand, Jesus, who gives you the authority to do something like this? And do you remember what Jesus says? Destroy this temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. John chapter 2. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. In these early chapters of the Gospel of John, before John continues on with his story of Jesus, he wants us to be sure of the fact, to get clued in on the fact that Jesus has completely undone this whole temple system. It is Jesus who completely fulfills the role of the temple. It is Jesus who becomes the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect sacrifice of our sins. It is Jesus who becomes the one through whom we can go to and experience the real presence of God, the Word made flesh tabernacling among us. Later in the Bible, we have a book called the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews was written a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it's a deep and rich reflection on how Jesus' life and ministry is related to the Jewish temple and sacrificial system. And what Hebrews tells us is that temple, in all of its glory, in all of the good that it was, in all of the ways that it provided a place of sacrifice and real and true worship for Israel, That all of it was an illustration or a copy or a shadow of what Jesus would do through his life and ministry, through his death and resurrection. What we learn in the New Testament, in the gospel stories, and in the book of Hebrews is that Christ came as the ultimate and final sacrifice. The sacrifice that was made so that priests would no longer need to make sacrifices over and over and over and over again. So that blood would not have to be shed over and over and over again for forgiveness. But that Christ, the Lamb of God, through His shed blood would be the perfect and final sacrifice needed for our sins. So Christ, the perfect Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the once and for all sacrifice, for our forgiveness. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. And we're going to get back now to that serpent in the garden. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. I'll start by reading verses 11 and 12. It says, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest, that is Jesus, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, the final and perfect priest, made the sacrifice on the cross, the one-time sacrifice for our sins, and sits down at the right hand of God. In Christ, you and I have the great privilege of our sin being washed away, of being made perfect and clean through his sacrifice for us. Listen to verse 13. And since that time, he waits for his enemies To be made his footstool. A descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. It is this one, Jesus, the descendant of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Solomon, who through his sacrifice on the cross will put all of God's enemies under his feet. It is his work on the cross that forgave us of our sins and through the resurrection showed that that death was the first part of a victory that God would have not only to make it possible for our sins to be covered, but the first step in the victory over the serpent, Satan, who has been the source of evil from the very beginning. Friends, God's mission is to fill the whole earth with his glory. To make the whole earth a place of his dwelling, his divine habitation. The dwelling of God will be with people and he will be so near to us that he will wipe every tear from our eye. God's mission, his final goal, his purpose is to fill the whole earth with his glory. The final goal of God's mission is not to get you and I into heaven when we die. It is small thinking, and it puts us as human beings at the center of God's purposes rather than God. God is at the center and purpose of God's salvation plan. God's mission is that his whole earth would be filled with his glory. Another way of saying this, another way of saying this is that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. God, that your name would be hallowed, made holy here on earth as it already is in heaven. That your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same thing as the whole earth being filled with the glory of God. Or another way to say it is to look at that passage in Revelation 21 where the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes out of heaven from God so that the dwelling place of God is with people. So that earth and heaven will be one. I think for many people, and for the mission of the church, we see the gospel, that it begins and ends with our own individual, personal salvation. And too often, the good news of Jesus is really presented to people as kind of the minimum, minimum entrance requirement into heaven. I want to suggest to you today that if that is where your understanding of the gospel begins and ends... If that is all that you know about the good news of Jesus, then you are missing out on so many other amazing things that God is doing and that he wants to do in the world. The good news of the gospel includes, includes this great hope that we don't need to fear death. That in Christ, death has lost its sting. And to depart 
and to be with Christ is better by far. Our personal salvation before God is one of the great gifts of the gospel. But if that is where your understanding of the gospel begins and ends, you are missing out on the joy of so much more of what God is doing in the world. It's like sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner and eating a big plate of mashed potatoes. And when you're finished, saying that you've had Thanksgiving dinner. Mashed potatoes is one great part of Thanksgiving dinner. I love me some mashed potatoes. Especially my mom. She makes them really creamy, but there's always just a little bit of lumpiness in them. I don't know how she does it. It's so good. I love mashed potatoes. But there's so much more to the Thanksgiving meal as well. And so when the Bible tells us this good news about our personal salvation, it is a crucial piece of a bigger puzzle. God's plan and mission is not only to cover and forgive your sins so that your souls can go to heaven when you die. The Bible tells us that the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus is at the center of all world history, not only your history. The Bible tells us that one day the full effects of Jesus' accomplishments through the cross and resurrection will be shown to have so completely routed and destroyed Satan and evil that one day earth will be filled with the glory of God. That one day heaven and earth will be united together. One day the whole earth will be like the Garden of Eden, but without the serpent. Yeah, I think so too. The whole world will be like the Garden of Eden, but without the serpent, because the serpent will have been completely defeated. And then, at that time, there will be no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain, because the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Father, come quickly. Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would fill the whole earth with your glory. Lord, we pray that it would begin with us in our hearts, that in our own hearts and in our own lives, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But God, we pray and hope that your will would be done, your kingdom would come in every corner of this planet. Now we look forward to the day when the whole earth will be filled with your glory. Amen.